Hello and welcome. Is your business your mission and your mission your business? If yes, you found your tribe. Whether you feel like it or not, you are avant-garde, going your own way, making your own path, doing it like no one has done before. And the answers to the challenges you're facing aren't in a book. My friend, you are not alone. This is the Avant-Garde Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Trisha Bailey, a mission-minded serial entrepreneur and traveler. My purpose on this earth is to use my authenticity and passion to equip and empower social entrepreneurs to live in their highest calling, feeling freedom, fulfillment, and security, and inspiring others to do the same. Join me for stories, tips, and tricks for taking avant-garde inspired action in your business so that you feel encouraged, equipped, empowered, and unstoppable. I believe it doesn't have to be hard to be right. Welcome to episode 42 of Avant-Garde Entrepreneur. I am so glad you're here today with me, my friend. Today, we begin a two-part series on investment readiness. This is something that I've wanted to do for quite some time. And Dr. Jim King in episode 40 teed us up to do this this series sooner than later. Dr. King has been a professor for over 30 years, and he shared that the number one trend in social enterprise is impact businesses as investment opportunities. Yes, there are people out there who believe in you in more ways and with more depth than you can imagine. And I thought, what better way for you to begin to believe that than to hear directly from people who are putting their money where their mouth is and investing in you. Now, one caveat, this episode is not for investors. It is not about the process of investing. Instead, this is more about the mindset of investors and what they're looking for. This is for avant-garde entrepreneurs who want to up-level their impact, missional, faith-driven, or social business. This series is specifically designed to expand your minds about what's possible in terms of larger scale financial partnerships, and also to increase your understanding about what you can do now to begin positioning your enterprise as a candidate. And I can't think of anyone better to kick off this series than my good friend, Don Simmons. Don has been around as an advisor and advocate of mission-focused businesses for a decade or two. I've heard his name early on in the business's mission world and was honored to be introduced to him by Joseph Peer, who was our guest in episode 37 and 38. Don is the author of The Steward Investor, a book that if you are looking, uh, watching on YouTube, I'm holding it up right now. This is a book that if you read it, you would say, Oh my gosh, if everybody lived this way, we could expand like crazy. Don could retire, but he doesn't because he loves you so much and he believes in you. He believes in you so much that he started a whole organization to formally make people aware of the opportunities in mission, impact, faith, and faith-driven and social businesses. And 
He's graciously accepted my invitation to come on the show and talk to you, directly to you to encourage you about the possibilities and to give you a leg up into the minds of investors when it comes to you becoming investment ready. Don, thank you so much for being here. Trisha, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I look forward to our conversation. Me too. There's lots of information in that brain, and we're going to see how much we can extract <laughs> in 30 or 40 minutes. <laughs> Sounds good. So Don, tell us about yourself. Give the listeners an idea of maybe a little of your professional background and how did you discover the world of, on the show, I talk about social enterprise just as a general term, but when it comes to impact businesses, how did you discover this, this world of impact faith-driven businesses? Yeah, I've been an investor, financial advisor, wealth manager since 1988. Hard to believe, a long time. But it was about halfway through my career as a professional wealth advisor that I stumbled onto a, an economic development fund based out of London, England, that uh, I was just intrigued with what they were doing from North East Africa through the Middle East and on into Asia and Southeast Asia. So I made an investment and part of that meant that I would be the mentor of one of the companies that they were invested in, in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. And that relationship led me ultimately to serve as their chief operating officer for several years, managing a team of about 40 mentors in that region of the world, helping small, impactful social enterprises to be successful financially in terms of their social impact and environmental impact. So that's been about 15 years that uh, I've done that. And the book that you held up there is really the result of my experience over, over that time serving as the the chief operations officer for that fund in, in England. That's amazing. And that's a lot. 40 mentors. That's a, yeah. that's a huge team of people. Wow. Well, every investment was assigned either one or two mentors. We, we actually used the mentor program as a training ground for new mentors. So frequently mm -hmm. we would match a seasoned coach, mentor, loan officer with somebody who's new to the impact space so that they could learn from a seasoned professional. Hmm. What was it about when you, when we talk about kind of what was, you know, obviously as a wealth manager, you were exposed to a lot of things in your career. What was it that really sparked your passion for this impact investing? What made this different than some of the other things that you'd seen? I think there's two things, Tricia. First, my personal strongest spiritual gift is the gift of giving. Um, I like to be generous. I like to use resources to bring blessing to other people. So my wife and I have, have been very faithful and consistent givers to charity projects. But I'm also a business person, and I recognize that business can be a much more effective tool to bring about transformational change in society with individuals, communities, and at, let's say, a whole cultural level. Business itself is the language of the world. Commerce is where everybody has to interact. 
It crosses racial barriers, socioeconomic barriers, gender barriers. Everyone participates in the marketplace. And the marketplace doesn't operate on charity. It doesn't operate on philanthropy. The lifeblood of business is invested capital. Mm -hmm. So how do we take invested capital, or actually how do we help investors to change their mindset so that they can use their invested capital, not just for financial returns, but also to accomplish great, eternal, impactful outcomes. I can see that. That's amazing. When it comes to being investment ready, obviously you've worked with a lot of organizations that you have fostered the, along this, this journey of becoming investment ready. For people who aren't there yet, it seems like this huge mystery. It's kind of like this black box of what is involved? How do I start? Especially because so many start as a team of one with maybe a dollar, maybe even less than that. And, you know, the investment readiness can seem like a long time away. How complicated is it becoming investment ready? What's I know this is probably a, a big question for you, but what's involved? What are some of the basics that we might need to know that would help us? Yeah, I don't think that it's it's all that difficult. It depends on the kind of enterprise that you're trying to start. But I'd say first and foremost, you need a minimum viable product, an MVP. You need a prototype of of what it is that you're anticipating that you will use for your business, whether it's a product or a service, you need to develop that to the point where you've actually sold at least one, but hopefully more, to several customers where they actually pay for the product or service that you want to go into business for. An idea itself is not sufficient to be investment ready. To get to that point of of an MVP, a minimum viable product, you'll probably need to do a fair amount of market research to determine if there is actually demand for the service or product that you're offering. I can give you an example of one business I met with many years ago that failed to do this properly. They had had some folks visit from from the United States to their country and determined that uh, what was needed because in this particular country, people mostly drink tea, and tea is, is kind of the social aspect of society. And so the Westerners suggested, wouldn't it be wonderful if all these shops that serve tea had engraved teacups with their logo or name on it? And so they quickly financed a, a laser printer, etcher, that would do that on these little glass teacups. Well, after a year of of starting that business and building a storefront and investing in the the laser engraver, they really hadn't sold a single teacup to any restaurant. And it was the simple fact that they hadn't actually done any research to poll the restaurants as to whether they thought they needed that or not. A typical teacup that maybe cost 25 cents and increased the price to 75 cents if it was going to be engraved. And there just wasn't anybody in that community that wanted to, in, to, in, 
to spend that much at the restaurant on teacups that frequently broke and were recycled. So you need a minimum viable product and you better do enough research to prove that your product actually is something that people want and they're willing to pay for. And then the last piece I would say, uh, speaking specifically about investors, some investors will be very interested and most compelled to join you because of your social impact story. What is it that you're trying to accomplish other than just financial return? So it might be poverty alleviation or job creation or societal transformation, but you're going to need to find investors whose hearts connect with your heart on that particular thing. So those are the really the three pieces market research, minimum viable product, and then a story that connects with investors' hearts. And then I, th- I think it stands just to reason that uh, you will need a three-year written business plan of some sort that shows that your business can go from investment to sustainable to profitability. And some investors will want to see high profitability. Others will be more interested in in purely sustainable enterprise that can accomplish these other outcomes. I hope that helps. Don, that helps a lot. That makes it seem so much less complicated and so much of a mystery. That That's really amazing to have some three, well, I'd say four tangible walkaways, four things that you need. I, I think something that's important for listeners to hear is that having a good idea is not enough. So there are people that can say, well, I have got this great idea. If someone had invested in it, I would be able to grow it. Well, that doesn't work that way. Sounds like you've got to do your research. You've got to actually sell the product, create the thing, and be able to prove that you can sell it before you're going to be considered investment ready. Absolutely. And I know that your entrepreneurs may not have a lot of financial resources to get started, but that's true of almost all small business everywhere in the world, even in places like the United States. People borrow from themselves, family, friends. Sometimes we say other fools who are willing to take a leap with you. but you, you will need some financial capital to get started, to get to that minimum viable product place. Mm-hmm. Sweat equity is good, your own time and energy. But if there's a cost to get to the point where you have a prototype, that will be something you need to do before you go and solicit investors. Mm-hmm. And thanks for bringing that perspective too, because I think people see that America is the land of opportunity and it is, but that doesn't mean it's free. And we all start at zero. Every one of us who started a business, I've never had capital going to start a business. You literally start with zero and you're constantly, you know, dealing with the mindset, do I put, pursue this or do I just go back to what I know that's easy, that's already making money? So that's right. all that's of right. us make these trade-offs. This is a universal principle. I think we can add this to the list. My, I think I could have a book in the next 10 years of the, the things that we all feel like we live in isolation, but no, it's, it's universal. Universal, universal challenge. That's right. Even, even here in the land of opportunity, 
-hmm. only one out of five startups actually survives. This is a very, very difficult thing to to Mm -hmm. be an entrepreneur and to start a business, something that nobody else has ever done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so true. So Don, when you are looking at, well, I'm just going to ask the short question first, because this is what people want to know. How do you decide? So if you're looking, like, what are the broad categories of criteria that you consider when you're comparing one company to another? Yeah, I think I already alluded to this in the last question that I think there's really two different kinds of investors. Mm -hmm. There are those who are almost focused exclusively on financial returns Mm -hmm. and the data behind that. And then there's impact investors who may be willing to receive concessionary returns lower than market rate returns, provided that the impact piece is happening. Mm -hmm. I tend to be in that second category. I'm seeking to have maximum societal transformation in the businesses that I invest in. And if I get a low rate of return, I'm okay with that. But that's not true of, I would say, the majority of investors in this space want to see competitive-like returns. Mm-hmm. So what, what do we look for? For all of us, we are going to want to see some kind of mechanism for accounting. So if you haven't started anything, it's going to be hard to to show historical financial data. But I think if you do what I've said and you actually spend some money to do research and a minimum viable product, then you're going to have to account for that and show the results. Business is all about results. And so while it may not be that you've sold a product because of your market research, you should have data that shows well, I talked to 500 different businesses and asked them these series of questions, and here's the results of that. Mm-hmm. Any investor is going to want to see that you can do that kind of analysis because that simply flows then to the future kind of financial analysis that's required. So first is, is data. There has to be data to support your idea. An idea itself will not get you an investor. Ultimately, then, I I talked about you're going to want to have a three-year plan for the future. Those who are seeking market-like financial returns will want to see that in three to five years, you can repay a loan to them at a market-like return. Those who are impact investors will maybe want to see, show me your impact metrics, how many jobs will be created, how many Children will no longer not have a meal per day. How many women can be employed who can help their children to go to school? And is your program sustainable? Once the investment is made, will it perpetuate itself? If it can't do that, even for somebody like me who's seeking impact, but if if it can't be shown that it's sustainable, it is not a business. It is a charity. And that's that's a very different thing. You need to seek people who are willing to simply give you money and never expect repayment. You know, there are plenty of programs that do that. But if we're, if we're talking about true, redemptive, 
impactful social enterprise. Enterprise is the key word. It needs to be sustainable where the revenues generated by the business can sustain the business in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. Now, accounting and data, uh, sustainable ability to repay a loan. I talked about minimum viable product. What in, in, the, in, in the business plan that uh, somebody's going to create, there needs to be some sales and marketing objectives and anticipated results from those. Again, even those of us who lead with our heart need data. And while capital is the lifeblood of business, no business succeeds if there's not somebody who's able to go out and sell the business. Mm-hmm. So I don't care whether you're a service provider, an accountant, an attorney, an IT professional. If you're going to try to do that as a business, you better have an understanding that your first and highest priority or job is your marketing and sales. Mm-hmm. You could be the best CPA accountant in the world or the best IT person in the world. If you can't go out and sell your expertise to somebody where they are willing to pay for you, you're basically unemployed. That is the nature of business. I remember when I started my first business 30 plus years ago, I considered myself unemployed every day until (laughs) I went out and found a customer to work for. Mm -hmm. That's the nature of of starting a business. One of the last things, I shouldn't say last, it's certainly up there. It's a major priority that I look for is the people in leadership. Are they Mm -hmm. people that I have confidence in? that they are trustworthy, that they're honorable, that they will do what they say they're going to do, and that they are actually competent and capable of building the business that they're talking about this building. In fact, I maybe should have put that first because I, I tend frequently to make gut decisions on investments based on the people that I'm investing in. And maybe I'd add one other thing, not as a criteria, But as the personality of investors, some investors will make an investment and then be more hands-off. If I was to advise an entrepreneur seeking an investor, I would seek investors who would want to partner with me, Mm -hmm. who would get into the weeds with me, who would struggle with me, who would coach me, who would teach me, who would lift me up when problems arise. That's far more valuable than just somebody who's able to write a check, somebody who will actually be in it with you for the next three, five, 10 years, whatever it takes until you are successfully launched into a sustainable business. So there are people like that out there who really want to do this. They really want to be in the weeds and they really want to help the business leader get the thing off the ground. Not everybody because not all investors have that time. Mm -hmm. Some investors hire other professionals to help do that, Mm -hmm. to do the accountability and the monitoring. But Mm -hmm. yes, there are a lot of other people like me who want to have a personal relationship with the leaders, come alongside them. And while we can't do it together, because Mm -hmm. we're in different geographic locations, Mm -hmm. you know, we do want to be in people's lives. Yeah. 
That mentoring is so critical. Could you speak a little bit about the difference in businesses you've seen who've had mentors versus those who didn't? I can speak personally about a few of the projects I've been involved with. And more often than not, as even with the best laid plans and all of the things that I talk about, business is difficult and businesses are going to run into problems. Mm-hmm. It might be things out of control of the business. It could be a political environment in the country, a coup or a revolution. It could be an economic event that causes the economy collapse. It could be weather-related if you're in the agricultural space where there's a drought or flooding. I've been a part of businesses that have experienced every one of those things. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the most difficult was was a business in a country that had a coup, a revolution, um, that basically froze the entire economy for more than a year. At the same time, inflation was about 50%. So Mm -hmm. employees were struggling to simply buy food. What do you do in that circumstance? Well, if you simply have an investor who's overseas and is not really in it with you, Mm -hmm. they won't help. For those of us who were involved in in that business, we stepped up and we made sure that we actually helped on sales and marketing to find business opportunities for that business so that it could continue to operate through the period of dislocation. Mm -hmm. We didn't lay anybody off during that whole time period. We were able to give job salary adjustments to meet with inflation. And it was all done very creatively, leveraging the, the skills, expertise, and relationships of, of the investors around the world to help this, this company to survive. Because we believed if we could get through the dislocation, the business would have a very good opportunity because their competitors probably would not survive. Mm-hmm. And that was what happened. It delayed the repayment of loans for several years until uh, we were able to get that back on its feet. But it was a win-win for the business and the investors. Mm -hmm. If you just have an investor who isn't a partner with you, they're not going to step up to help in that way. So it sounds like there are different types of networks of different investors. This episode is brought to you by Avant Garde Entrepreneur Foundations, where you can go from contemplation to clarity in just six weeks. How incredible does that sound? By learning to tap into the superpower of your spirit, you'll feel refreshed in your mind, certain of your mission, and inspired in your business. Go to trishabaileyphd.com forward slash A-G-E-F dash waitlist for more details. You can also find the link here in the show notes. So this is a great segue into a question that we have from one of the listeners. This is such a hot topic. You would not believe how many questions people have. So I'm going to ask a few of these now. And it's a direct segue into what you just shared. So this question is from David. He is the founder of Able State in Uganda. He says, this is his direct question. Some ideas appeal to some investors and others do not. What tips do you give a social enterprise founder to discover the right investor networks and avoid burning the little resources a social enterprise might have? I think David is spot that different investors will look for different things. 
And I would say that as you, as a founder, entrepreneur, are looking for investors, recognize that only about one out of 10 investors that you talk to will actually connect with you, David, or the others who are listening to this, because it's a personality thing. This is not a purely impersonal investment when we buy a stock or a bond on a publicly traded platform. Investments into entrepreneurs have to be personal. So first and foremost, recognize that everybody that you talk to will not align with you. It's maybe one out of 10. And so you have to do the hard work, the legwork of talking to a lot of people. It might be 10 people. It might be 100 people. I don't know. But different investors are looking for different things. And there has to be a chemistry between the investor and the entrepreneur. I'd also say that I don't know exactly what's available in Uganda, but in different regions, there are different ponds to fish in for investors. I, as an investor, or in helping other investors, I fish in certain ponds in certain geographic areas. My focus is primarily the Middle East and out through Asia and Southeast Asia. I don't have uh, many networks in, in Africa, per se, and certainly not in Uganda, but you need to find the ones that are there. One that I do know operates in Uganda is one called Synapis. They are a business accelerator, and they actually have, they just had a Shark Tank competition kind of thing back in June where they had half a dozen entrepreneurs pitch their businesses in front of a handful of investors. So you need to find the right pools to fish in for your investors in the same way that we investors operate in certain ponds or pools where we are fishing for entrepreneurs. That's a great answer, Don. Thank you so much. I think that helps a lot of people to understand, first of all, that you've got to do a lot of talking. The one in 10 is huge. So <laughs> there may be 100 or 200 that you talk to, but then also to find the pools because there are communities of people. And I think my relationship with you is an example of that. It's once you're ready, sometimes once you're ready, the opportunities come. And those these people just in the the resource just kind of appear out of nowhere. So that doesn't mean we just get to sit back. But when you are alert and you're observant, then these pools of people will present themselves. That's yes. amazing. So this question is from someone who wants to remain anonymous. So let's say we have a social enterprise in Central Africa, which is in the technology space and the future of work industry. And there are quite a few Africans who have businesses in that are in IT and are also, when we say the future of work, they're actually training people to be, and, you know, they're not people who come to offices. They're people who work from their homes or the bus or wherever they are. They're training people to be equipped to work from wherever they are. Could you recommend ideal investment or any types of investment opportunities for someone that's in the, the tech space? And you may have answered it earlier, but since it was a question from someone, I want to honor them by asking this question. Yeah, if I were seeking investment for IT related things, mm -hmm. I would fish 
with people who are also in the IT space. Right there, you've already got a common language and a common understanding. It'll be much harder, let's say, to, to fish among a bunch of farmers who are really good at agriculture and livestock. They probably aren't going to invest in technology. So mm-hmm. I would look for organizations that have very successful IT people in them. That would be where I'd start. And I would just you know, start by building relationships there and asking those people, who might you know who would be uh, able or interested in investing in an enterprise that does this, 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 and this? That, that's where I'd start. You may think that, you well, I want to start in an investor network. The problem is in the investor network, not all of those investors are going to be IT people. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think my affinity would be for the the industry self. So that's that best answer. And would you say that applies to other industries as well? Whatever industry you're in, to start fishing in in those and finding people who are maybe a little bit more advanced than you are and getting to yeah. know them. I would start there because that way you already have a common language. I. I will add, because personally, I've generally been pretty agnostic in terms of the industries that I've mm-hmm. invested in. Mm-hmm. So I do have investments in IT. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have investments in agriculture. I have them in hospitality. Pretty much you name it, I've probably tried it. <laughs> but, but that's because I start with the leader, but not all investors start that way. Most of them need a, a different connection. So I just put that out there. Yeah, thank you. There are some investors who are seeking the impact and then they really look at the leadership and they'll cross into industries that they may not even be experts in Mm -hmm. simply because they have built built a great bond with the leader of, of the business. Okay, that's helpful. I have a question from Caitlin, uh, from Caitlin from Myanmar, and you, you've kind of alluded to this, but again, I want to ask it because these are directly her words. So if you may have shared the answer in some way, but this might resonate with other people asking it her way. So she says, are there certain types of businesses you are more apt to invest in, such as tech versus retail? Yeah. I just said personally, I tend to do many different industries because I, I'd like to work with the leaders themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll recall some advice that I received at least 15, maybe more years ago when I, I first started to dabble in this. And I share this with investors who are trying to start their journey on impact investments. One of my friends, this was in Central Asia, uh, who'd already been there since the early 90s trying to do impactful business. He said to me, Don, if you, if you want to have the greatest opportunity for success, stay as close to the food chain as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. And what he meant by that was invest in business entrepreneurs who are providing products or services that people will need regardless of what happens to the economy. Mm-hmm. So the food chain agriculture is one that has to survive no matter what other events are happening. Other industries, hospitality, uh, even technology to some degree, you can get through 
difficult times without the need for those services. Mm-hmm. So if you're an entrepreneur trying to figure out what business to start, I think I would start with something that's an absolute necessity where people will need it regardless of what happens. You are mm-hmm. operating in markets and environments and countries where uh there's just many risks that can happen that are outside of your control. What can you do to minimize that? Well, be in a product or service that everybody needs no matter what. Mm-hmm. Non-discretionary. Yes. <laughs> going to have it no matter what. <laughs> so, COVID, whatever. I'm going to yeah. have this product, yes. Engraved teacups. Yes. Not a necessity. Not a necessity. <laughs> well, speaking of food, um, One of the questions, we had a question from Hillary in Ghana. He is the founder of Restorative Seed Society, and he works with farmers and, as you know, the incredible challenge of behavior change in terms of adopting new farming practices and new, you know, planting new varieties. This may be a little out of the wheelhouse, but a lot of There's very rarely an import strategy when it comes to business, but a lot of people see an export strategy as a way to really exponentially grow their business so that they can become investment ready. So what would you, and I hear this question a lot, what, as someone who has been around and seen a lot, what would you say to people who are working with farmers and want to help their products get exported? Are there any opportunities for that? I agree with the concept. I don't have any expertise on import export. Mm-hmm. So I don't really know what what even the steps are that you need to take. What I do know is that in many countries the import export process is ripe with corruption and difficulties that, again, are hurdles that need to be overcome. So you really need somebody from your country who understands the nature of of all of that Mm -hmm. to figure out how to migrate through that in honest, ethical ways. But I, I don't have good depths of experience to give advice in that area. Well, I think what you shared is probably the most important thing because it's fundamental and foundational. So someone can have a great strategy on paper, but the most important thing is understanding that it is a challenging environment. There is a lot of corruption, especially when you're dealing with perishable products, things sitting on the dock. It's a huge risk. And not that we are all risk averse, but there are certainly things you need to have an expert on your team, someone that you really trust to be on your team to handle that, especially when you're the one who's working with the farmers. You've got enough, you got enough challenges on your hands. You almost need someone who's dedicated and is really an expert and export. So what you shared was perfect. Absolutely. So let's shift you. So first of all, I want to thank all the listeners for asking those questions. Fantastic. First time we've done this and I really appreciate you answering so authentically, Don. So let's shift gears, Don, and let's talk leader to leader. So taking off your advisor cap and kind of talking to your peers. So while your your firm is not technically a social enterprise, it is certainly a mission-focused business in your work with investors. And while you're not technically doing it for the money, 
I've known you long enough to know that this is a labor of love. And I think all listeners can hear, you know, as you talk and you share with them, they can hear that you're extremely passionate about them and you care about them and you believe in them. Would you be willing to share one of the mindset challenges in building, whether it's Steward Advisory Group or one of your other businesses and how you've overcome that? All I can say is that Every time I've started a business, it's much harder than I initially thought it would be. And this newest business is maybe the, I don't know, 12th, 13th, 14th startup that I've been a part of. So I'm not new to, to startups. And it, this is the hardest one I've ever done. And you'd think mm-hmm. at age 60 that this should be old hat. It's actually in an industry that I've got 30 years of experience. This should be something that's easy, but I, I, my wife would tell you, this is the hardest thing that, that Don has ever done. How do I get around that? I don't think I could do it if I wasn't completely convinced that this is what I was made to do. There's, for each of us, there, we do have a calling. The Latin word is voca. We get vocation from that, but it really means calling. And for me, it's it's those things in life where my passions, my skills, my training and ability, and my network of influence all come together for a common purpose. That is where calling takes place. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I can smile saying this is the hardest thing I've ever done is that I know that this is what I was made to do. And the end results, for good or for bad, be a function of of me pouring in everything that I've got because this is what I was made to do. I think that's the critical piece. Whenever you start something, it has to be a burning passion in the gut. It's not just a good idea. It's not just something I'm going to try. It's something? Am I willing to go to the mat, give this everything I've got? Because that that is what every business is going to call you to. And mm-hmm. you and your spouse need to know that before you get started, because this has implications on marriages and family and friendships and all other aspects of our lives. When you start a business, it's going to extract everything you've got. Mm-hmm. Um, be ready for that. That doesn't mean that you should plan for a failed marriage. You need to be aware ahead of time mm-hmm. and you need to set goal posts, guide posts in place to protect your marriage and to protect your family ahead of time and to make sure that you have some accountability people who are checking on that with you. Otherwise, a business startup will chew you up and it will spit you out. Mm-hmm. Well said, Don. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think the role of a spouse or a significant other cannot be understated when it comes to starting a business, especially all the business owners I've worked with, all the impact business owners I work with, with Avant-Garde Entrepreneur, they are all driven by a higher calling. They're not doing this for the money. That is this thing deep inside that calls them to do that. And sometimes we feel like we're an island. Um, Sometimes we feel like leadership is lonely and we start to to isolate. 
But the time that is when you probably need your spouse or your family the most. Sometimes we think we're bulletproof, that we can just do it all. And I really appreciate you sharing and being truthful with all of us that, you know, this is 12th, 13th, 14th business and it's the hardest one. And you still need your wife. You still need your friends and your family network. You're still making sacrifices, still juggling. Thank you for sharing that. So another universal law, no matter how many years you do it, it doesn't necessarily get any easier, especially when it's the deep desire inside of you. When the more you're called, the more you're tested sometimes, I think. That's right. Yeah. So Don, when it comes to, I feel like you've shared, I, I feel like we really understand your your why and why you do this and what keeps you going. How do you, or do you even recharge? You know, when it comes to, especially since this business is the hardest one you've ever done, you've been in the business world for over 30 years. Being in the business world three years is taxing. Uh, what do you do to to recharge and kind of restore yourself so that you can keep going? I'll admit that I'm not the best at this, but I have learned over the years. I, I know my personal patterns or cycles. I've come to know how long I can run really hard and really fast. And I've come to, to understand when I'm headed for a crash a long, be, long before that happens. It used to be that I didn't see it coming until I burned myself out. So I think that the first thing is to, to have a good awareness of yourself, to know how much your body and your mental state and your emotional state can handle. You need to be self-aware to know when it's, when it's too much. And your spouse or a significant other should be a person who can, can help with that. But then the second thing I, I alluded to this also, that having people around you who also know you, but who have been given permission to ask hard questions about your marriage, about whether you're sleeping at night, about uh, whether you're getting exercise, about whether you're spending quiet time to reflect and charge on those things that uh, that fill us each day, whether it's it's spiritual or intellectual, you know, readings, those kinds of things. But there need to be people in your life who have permission to poke at those hard things. I don't think that you can survive without that. We've all heard of, of wonderful, successful leaders who everybody think is going along fine. And then all of a sudden we, we learn of, of a crash, a moral crash or a financial a crash that they have. And I believe in most of those cases, it's because they didn't have people in their life who were given permission to ask the hard things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for each of us, the recharging, I think, is different. My personal hobby is I, I'm a private pilot. I love to, to fly little airplanes. And I just tallied up my, my hours for this summer. I only flew about 12 hours compared to typically I'll fly about 50 hours from June through September. So I know that this business is demanding a lot from me in that the one hobby that I have, I did not really do much of this summer. I'm okay with that for this season, but that's for me, that's already an indicator that I'm out of balance. 
I didn't do the one thing that in the summertime allows me to recharge. The, the good thing about flying is you can't think about anything else. <laughs> Yeah. And nobody can call you except, <laughs> except can the control tower. <laughs> so I, I hope that's helpful. I, yes. I think that the idea of accountability and having at least one or two people in your life who has permission to ask hard questions to see how you're doing. Mm-hmm. And hopefully they know you well enough to, to know whether you're telling them the truth or not. Yes, yeah, so true. Yes. I can see that, that recharging is different for all of us. And as much as I'm a fan of an advocate of quiet time, and I kind of live by it, I know that there are seasons when people who are wired certain ways just charge forward and just keep going. And if they stop long enough to think, they would probably stop. So I can see the value of having that, even if, let's say, oh, quiet time or meditation practice isn't your thing. The most important thing being to have someone in your life who has permission to ask the tough questions because that's your kind of your recalibration. Yes. Yeah, that's huge. So much wisdom, Don. Thank you so much. I'm going to ask you one more question. And this is a kind of a more wisdom question because you've seen so much. What is your biggest vision for this generation of impact entrepreneurs. So let's say someone who's 27 and who's just getting started at 27, we feel like we're ancient, but we're not. <laughs> what is your vision for these these young 20, 30s impact entrepreneurs? How do you see their future different than let's say someone who is has been doing this for a few decades and is maybe 47 or 57? I'm really excited about the younger generation. I'm never sure whether they're Gen Xers or Gen Ys or what label to put on them. But my colleagues and I are all very passionate about training up the next generation to think differently than the the way that us old folks think. And so, you know, my hope, my vision for the next generation I think they already think more holistically than the rest of us do. Their lives are more integrated. They may not be quite as focused on uh, career success and financial success. They want to, to enjoy life at the same time. So I think my hope, my vision would be the next generation of, of entrepreneurs and in my line of work, the next generation of impactful investors mm-hmm. will think not only about themselves, but how what they do and what they invest in can bring flourishing and blessing to others. I'm just a, a big believer in an old Bible verse that talks about uh, Abraham was blessed so that he could bring blessing to all nations. And I I try to live by that, that as the Lord provides resources to me, that my role is to to use those to bring blessing to others. So I know that that may be kind of a, a spiritual language, but I think we all have that. And I think that the younger generation has that in them in them as well, that it's not just about them. It's about what they can do to build a better world to bring human flourishing and blessing 
to all of the spheres of influence that they touch upon. That's my hope. Oh, I love that vision. I love that. And I think it's more than a hope. I think it's certainly the things that you're doing and the team that you have and your family and the history of investment that not, and I don't mean investment in terms of dollars, but investment in terms of investment in terms of yourself and your love and your care and your advocacy for impact entrepreneurs. It's just incredible. So Don, you have truly, truly expanded our minds today in terms of what's possible in terms of larger scale financial partnerships. And I think we also have a much better understanding of some of the things that we can do now to position our our impact enterprise as a candidate for investment. Yeah, thank you, Tricia. This was a lot of fun. I, I hope that it's helpful for your audience. Oh, I think it's very helpful for the audience. It's certainly helpful for me. It's going to help me help other people better. So thank you, Don. All right. Well, we will sign off for now. Thank you so much, Don. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Avant Garde Entrepreneur. I hope you feel encouraged, equipped, empowered, and unstoppable. If you enjoyed what you heard, share it with a friend. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review it here on your podcast player. Questions, comments, or feedback? Connect with me directly at trishabaileyphd.com or on social at trishabaileyphd. Now, you go and get back to making the world a better place. I'll see you back here soon.